trigger warning. This podcast is intended for men. Not boys, not babies, men. This is how we disable toxic masculinity. We need to kill all men. This pagan patriarchalism that is coming back out of the shadows. Feminists hate patriarchy. It's the woman that runs the show and the woman that runs the community and is the backbone of, of that area. I'm a nasty woman. A loud, vulgar, proud woman. Patriarchy. Are you saying you have authority over me? Go get your superior. I personally can't see why egalitarianism would be a bad thing. The assumption that wives should make babies instead of money is part of the patriarchy. Don't say hi to strange women you don't know. Patriarchy. The patriarchy. 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 Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You are on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and you are listening to The Patriarchy. My name is Tony DePani, and I am joined by my co-host, Pastor Joseph Randall Spurgeon. Woman, get back in here and make me a sandwich. Joseph, what kind of sandwich are you eating today? Well, um, my wife has been doing really good at cooking some um, steak, and she's been putting on some bread, and it's been really good. And I was sitting here eating one of these steak sandwiches with my son, and he, he's been learning stuff in school. You know, he's doing homeschool and, and learning science. And so he told me, Dad, did you know the uh, the Earth, it rotates you know around completely in in 24 hours and i said yes son that that really makes my day (laughs) does your son roll roll his eyes when when you tell him jokes or just your daughters because my daughters are the only ones that roll their eyes my sons just laugh probably just my daughters hey tony how many push-ups can you do oh no this is going somewhere i can tell i don't know i don't know why well, if they're the orange flavor, I know, in fact, I can do seven of them in one sitting. <laughs> uh, only seven? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that would be, that'd be a bad next morning. <laughs> oh. That really makes my day. Yeah, it really makes your day. <laughs> uh, orange push-ups. There you go. Yeah, and steak sandwiches. Yeah. Good times. All right. What did I eat? I had to think about that for a minute. Okay, so I ate eh, similar. I mean, it's not steak, but it's you know still cow. So orange push-up sandwiches. Orange push-up. Oh, gross. Oh, oh. put them on bread. Oh, oh. oh man. I, oh, that's gross. I don't like orange push-ups anyways, but that that's even worse. So or orange push-up muffins. Yep. No. Hey. 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 That's <laughs> that's sacred territory, man. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't don't make fun of that. Uh, no, I had uh, well, I had a burger. I had a, a burger on the grill. Um, it, I actually, so I experimented. And I used, um, I can't remember the brand, but you know the steak seasoning comes in like a shaker. Um, I used some of that actually on the burgers and it tastes really, really good. I was trying something different on the burgers out there, and then and we Montreal's, had Montreal's, yeah, 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 that one, yeah, yeah, that one, yeah. yeah, it's really good actually on the burger, and it kind of packed it into pretty good. It tastes really good. It gives a little more spice to it, I think. But had that, had some uh, pepper jack cheese. On it, give it a little more spice, some uh, mayo, um, you know, all your normal toppings and stuff, your lettuce and whatnot. And then um, I toasted the um, buns. My, my kids just were like totally amazed that you can take buns and put them on the grill and toast them. And so they were, they really liked that a lot. And then, um, yeah, had some ketchup, dip it in some ketchup when you eat it. And it was good. Um, I guess technically my wife didn't make all that. She, she made the stuff that went with it. I usually do the grill stuff, but... That's my sandwich. I mean, technically, technically, a burger's a sandwich, right? It's meat on bread. It is. So, yeah. It is. And it's that time of the year, man. Oh, like, yeah. It's I, a perfect I, time. You go out there and you just start smelling the grill. Makes you hungry. Oh, I love, I love, I love this time of year when you can go out and grill all sorts of stuff and, and 
Uh, it's it's actually fun because with enough, you know, with our families, I mean, yours is bigger than mine, but even with my kids, it, when, <laughs> my, my boys eat like they're teenagers. So when I'm grilling, I just like fill the grill. And it's always funny when one of my neighbors comes over and is like, oh, you having a party? And I'm like, no, we're just feeding the family. <laughs> Nice. Yep. Yep. But all right. So, did you eat ice cream? But, did you eat ice cream after that? Did I eat ice cream after? Yeah. No, I didn't have an orange push-up. Is that what you're going with? No, no, no. I just wonder if you're like having ice cream because ice cream is so good that I I don't think even I don't even think feminists can screw up ice cream. Oh, yeah. There you go with this. Okay, that's why you interrupted me. That. Uh, yeah. Okay. This will all make sense and. In- a minute, unfortunately, but it it will all make sense. So, well, we're going to go to our next segment, which is... Feminism ruins everything. <laughs> and in advance, listeners, I am so sorry for what you're about to listen to. <laughs> all right, here we go. We know it's dinner time. We are sorry, but there is a health alert in Pinellas County tonight. After a woman was caught on camera urinating into a bucket used to make ice cream and then spitting into the ice cream. In- if that doesn't say feminism ruins everything. <laughs> so gross. They ruin ice cream. So, How they ruin God, ice cream? That's so <laughs> gross. And in, in true feminist matter, it wasn't, it, it wasn't enough for her to just pee in it. She had to spit in it afterwards. It's like some kind of spiteful thing. Oh, that's so yeah. nasty. Oh, do we want to listen was, to the rest of this, or was that? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah sure. Let's, I let's what say, happens. I, yeah, I want to say why, if there's even a reason. Indian Shores police say it happened at Lulu's Ice Cream and Candy Shop on Gulf Boulevard. The shop has been forced now to close. Young Soon Whipcha has been arrested. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> uh, her name is Young Soon Whipcha. She looks very <laughs> angry, too, in the picture and charged with criminal mischief and going against the Florida Anti-Tampering Act. Police say starting on June... Wait, the Anti-Tampering Act? You can't just charge somebody with peeing in an ice cream bucket and spitting in it? That's... Oh, why do our laws... Why are our laws so weird? Uh, okay. In 17th, five different times, she went to the bathroom and didn't wash her hands before touching containers of ice cream. That's all we're going to share with you for now. We have the disturbing details that you can read more about at WTSP.com. You'll also find what health inspectors are saying. Okay, that's the end of that one. Oh, okay. It was a health concern. Yeah, man. Yeah, oh. you think? So they didn't catch her on the first time. Did you do that five times? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really disturbing. Uh, yeah, man, I mean, could you imagine being? Could you imagine being the owner of that place? Like, there's. There's no reopening. It's I mean, done. Yeah, you're done. Like it, it just it went right down the drain. You know, Dude, don't sh- eat the yellow snow. It, don't eat the yellow snow cones. It's an ice <laughs> yes. cream place. <laughs> you'll never, you'll never look at a lemon snow cone the same way ever again. You'll wonder if if Miss Whipcha is back there peeing in the bucket, ruining everything. Oh, that's so gross. Your, your, your vanilla ice cream is awfully yellow looking. Is that like Superman ice cream? No, that's just. <laughs> This is our feminist flavor. <laughs> this, this lemonade's kind of tangy. <laughs> the new feminist flavor of ice cream by oh. Ben and Jerry's. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, that's so nasty. Man, people are gross. People are gross. I don't, there is no good segue <laughs> from that to, from there. <laughs> to our topic. Uh, Speaking of, yes. oh, how do you do it? Speaking of peeing while standing up, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yes, there we go. <laughs> men do that, and we're going to talk about <laughs> peeing men. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea how to transition this. This is well. We we are so not bad. entering Stephen interviewing Stephen Anderson today, but uh, if we were, this would be a good segue. Oh, oh man, I don't know. You take it because I don't know how to segue this. <laughs> All right, so folks, we're going to now move on to. Something much different. Um, Thankfully, yeah. So, um, actually, here's 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 one way to think of this. You know, as we're laughing, uh, man, you you've got to be able to just laugh at, at things. Uh, uh, there's there is wickedness around us, and um, it's very easy 
to get just to get um, bitter or discouraged about the evil that happens all around us. And uh, you, you just think about all the things we've gone through this past year. You think about how um, it, the uh, the election went and, and everybody up in arms around all that and all the stuff with, um, like, I think Biden was, was bragging about the record number of perverts, I mean, homosexuals that he's uh, uh, assigned into civil government. And you're just tempted to think, man, this is like so discouraging. Mm-hmm. And I think of Psalm 37 and Psalm 73, and it says, "Don't don't be discouraged by the evildoers, but don't don't lose heart because of them. Dwell on the land and cultivate faithfulness, cultivate good things." And so sometimes you just have to laugh and mock it. I mean, that's what it is. The evil is so stupid that it pees in ice cream. Well, doesn't that violate right? the eleventh commandment, Joseph? Aren't what? you aren't you aren't you just not being nice when you when you mock? evildoers? Shouldn't we just be nice to them? I mean, I I can hear it now. Well, we ought to be kind, and we ought to love our enemies and do good to them. But uh, there's a difference, I think, between mocking what they do, seeing it for all its grand stupidity, its foolishness, and mocking an individual to, to, in a sense of wanting to destroy them. And, and so there is a difference. And um, I think Christians are going to be joyful. Like, we have to be joyful. We have to look at what is happening in our land and think this is the height of stupidity. The mm-hmm. fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? It's a foolish thing. And you read through the Bible and you see about the fool. Um, it, there's a lot of funny things said about a fool. Uh, same thing about a lazy man, right? For, for example, in the Proverbs, the lazy man puts his hand in the bowl and won't lift it up to his mouth. I mean that there's mocking of that, mm-hmm. right? You're so you're so stinking lazy. You put your hand in the bowl for the potato chips, and you 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 don't have the energy to get it to your mouth. It could be some really heavy potato chips, <laughs> <laughs> thick cut. Yeah, and and you know when um, Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal, maybe your God's using the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it actually serves the purpose of two things. Mocking evil serves the purpose of showing the foolishness of it. To like, this is what this is where this leads. It leads to, to futility and just downright stupidness. Uh, there was a verse in Proverbs. I was my children. And I go through the book Proverbs every day, and it said the the the, the one who doesn't like discipline is stupid. And you know, a lot of times like. Christian parents like, oh, we don't say that word in our house. Well, that's stupid. Sorry, that's stupid. <laughs> it is. And so we were having a good time just talking about it. this. Is the stupid stuff. So, uh, thinking of that, and then thinking of how we have to have joy, we be able to think through that thing. That can actually strengthen our faith, and and help us as we uh, we need faith through dark times. And so, what we want to talk about today is faith, uh, the Christian virtue of faith. As we've been talking about all the different virtues that we need to have, courage, uh, prudence, uh, uh, love. We've talked about having um, temperance or or chastity. And um, all of those really, to be able to exercise those, you need to have faith. That is to be able to trust in um, the the Lord, to trust in the truth of what God has said, and to be and to trust it in such a way that you continue and you and you go and do something from it, right? Uh, um, Tony, you still there? Yep. Oh, okay. You you were look like you were froze. Sorry. Can you cut it and restart it? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so um, faith always then has fruit that comes from it. And a lot of times some of our debates about works and all these things, um, the reason I think the Roman Catholics and these people, well, they they get so confused about everything because they, they, they don't make clear distinctions. 
But one of the things we have to be careful of is we don't want to preach an antinomian gospel. We want to preach the truth, which is faith has fruits. Because what faith is, it's trusting in God enough, trusting in Christ enough to actually bow your knee to him and say, he's my Lord and I'm going to obey him. That's what faith is. Actually, it might be helpful to look at what R.C. Sproul says about faith. He says there's three aspects of faith, three essential aspects, and all three must um, must be there for it to actually be saving faith. So the first one he calls a notitia, which is, that is, it refers to the content of faith or the things that we believe. So um, it's basically the knowing of something. It's knowing the facts, if you will, of like the facts of the gospel. So um, knowing Jesus rose from the dead, knowing that uh, um, but we must repent and believe that he's God in, in the flesh, that uh, he will return. It's the it's the, the basically the you know the Apostles' Creed confessing that to be able to know to know those facts, but obviously that in and of itself is not an, an, enough to be considered faith because you know unbelievers, atheists, athe professors can tell you what Christians are supposed to believe, right. but you can't have true faith without having some knowledge of those true facts, right? You can't be completely divorced of that. Um, That's one reason, for example, nature is not enough to be able to teach us what we need for salvation because it doesn't convey the facts of who Jesus is and and that we need the scriptures. The second aspect of faith is called a census. And that is, it's a conviction of the content of of the faith is true. That is... It's not just knowing what the facts are. It's actually believing that they are true. It's believing that Jesus did rise from the dead, that he he did come in the flesh. It's believing that those facts actually happened. They're really true. But again, those uh, that that kind of that that aspect of faith is not enough in and of itself because we know what the demons yeah, have. I was going to say that, yeah, yeah, yeah. The demons have that that amount of faith. They know that God is true and they even shudder. And there are many people, I think, uh, within the church that, that can have these first two aspects. They know it's true. They know the facts, but they lack the third part, which is the mo- it is essential. And that is the fiducia, which is the personal trust and reliance. It's Knowing and believing the content of the Christian faith, but then relying on it for yourself, trusting on it. It's the, it's the like walking out on the plank, if you will, or um, and trusting that it can hold up your weight. It's well, walking out on a bridge, and that's where we were just talking about being able to laugh. That's where that comes from. Is that confidence? You know that that what what can the world do to me? You know that God can't. That kind of confidence, and I think that's where that kind of. And that's probably the difference between our laughing and the world laughing at us. I think theirs is a much more hopeless, almost defensive laughter, um, where I think ours uh, in, in multiple ways is offensive, uh, offensive in the fighting way and offensive to them. But um, I think that's where that comes from. It's, it's just that kind of, you know, you hear all the, you read all the stories of the martyrs and stuff going to the stake and, uh, you know, being burned or whatever has happened to them, however they were put to death, and uh, just the things that they were able to do or sing or laugh or whatever. Um, it uh, it looks like Joseph is being chased by a bee right now. Yeah, somehow there's a bee in my office. I, I could do a play-by-play. <laughs> and, and it's coming from the left and from the right and, and come down from there. All right, go go ahead. Sorry, before you... No, it's okay. It's just, it's just, you know... It's good. I don't want you to get stung there. It's kind of fun. I wish I wish our listeners could could see this. It's just kind of fun watching you dodge and weave over there, but bob and weave. Well, anyway, I mean that my that was my point was uh, just that I think that's where that comes from. I think the the being able to laugh um, without you know fear of anything, um, 
I think comes from that faith. That comes from that confidence that we have uh, that that Jesus has completed His work and that God is ultimately in control of everything. God's sovereignty, right? Yeah, it is a trust that what His Word says. And so, um, again, there's that the world's laughter is very cynical. It's the laughter of someone like, yeah, I don't know if I don't believe that. It's the la- yeah, it's basically the laughter of I don't believe that. Uh, I, on this past Sunday, I just spoke of this, actually. Um, Jesus, uh, do you remember in, in the Bible when Jesus, this man came up to Jesus and said, hey, my daughter is dead, and I'd like, if you come heal her. And then they start to go, and this woman comes and touches his robe, and she's healed. And then they get to the house, and there's like this giant funeral going on. Mm-hmm. Like there's music, and people are crying and all that stuff. And Jesus like comes to this funeral and he, he I, I called him the funeral crasher, shows up <laughs> and he he tells all the people, leave. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is kind of, it's, 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 the situation is so sad, but it's kind of funny. He's so he's disrespectful, like, that Jesus. He's so disrespectful. <laughs> he says, he says, leave. She's not dead. She's asleep. Mm-hmm. And then all the people, it says they laugh in the scorn. That's the unbelief laughter. Yeah. Yep. It's kind of like, are you serious? Mm-hmm. You can imagine, like, who is this guy? Like, he, are you serious? You really want us to leave? Mm-hmm. And then the next verse says, after they have left. So it was like, <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. You're, they had to leave. The, the mockers were placed out. And then Jesus raises the girl. And you can imagine, like, now there's actually true laughter. Um, there's this, uh, uh, quote from the princess bride about uh, um of all the kisses that have ever been and in history and this one tops them all at the end of the book i don't know if you ever seen the movie or whatever it's great long, long time ago yeah well what i said i kind of borrowed that line of like all the laughter that has ever been in the world you know we've had all kinds of laughter belly laughs late night uh laughing at you've just lost your you know your your Slap happy laughter. <laughs> and then all the mocking laughter of all that. You can imagine after someone has risen from the dead, the kind of laughter that happens then. Sure. And then on that day, and that day when Christ returns, I'm I'm convinced there will be the most pure laughter we've ever seen. Yeah, because yeah. Oh man, yeah. And so laugh and let it be the laugh of faith. Go ahead and get a practice on that laugh. Go ahead and start practicing for the laughter of heaven. Have faith and faith to live as God intended you to do. And then you'll be a a man that laughs and you'll be a man that obeys your calling as a man. And so uh, we're going to interview a guy about uh, a book he written called uh, Masculine Christianity. And we're going to be talking about um, just the purpose behind that of him writing a book and and uh, as you're listening to this interview, it'd be good to be thinking about what kind of faith it takes to just live as the man God intended you to live as. So, so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we are going to be on the line with Zachary Garris, author of Masculine Christianity. Very good book. You should go out and get it. So stick around. You are listening to The Patriarchy on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We'll be right back. Gentlemen and ladies, are you coming to the second annual Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Lebanon, Tennessee this fall from September 9th to 11th? This year's theme is the politics of sex. We'll have guest speakers, vendor booths, beer and psalm singing, food trucks and activities, and nightly after-party events. Last year's conference was a ton of fun, and we are excited to meet and hang out with even more of you this year. So go to FightLaughFeast.com, click on Events, and choose Conference in Tennessee from the drop-down, then grab the wife pack that giant church van full of kids and we'll see you and yours on September 9th in Lebanon, Tennessee.
We are on the line with Zachary Garris. Zachary is an attorney in Michigan, the author of Masculine Christianity, the editor of Dabney on Fire, a theology of parenting, education, feminism, and government. He attended Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, went to law school at Wayne State University in Michigan, and he is married to his wife of two years, and together they have one son, Zachary. Welcome to the patriarchy. Thank you for having me. So, Zach, uh, we almost had to cancel. Um, there was a little bird that told us if you came on the show that um, you would bring some extreme patriarchy here. Uh, so, nice. uh, <laughs> but we told the bird to go home, and so oh, I think we're good. That bird was not happy with that, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, boy. But, yeah, thank you for coming on, Zach. So we wanted to talk to you today about um, the book that you've written, Masculine Christianity. And um, in this book, yeah, I've, I've read it. Uh, I loved it. Um, a lot of good, good. Uh, I, I thought um, you just kind of put everything together in a, in a good order and a good uh, framework and very logical, reasonable, and, and not a hard read. Um, so we kind of want to talk about that, maybe even talk about how it takes faith to apply that, to have masculine Christianity. But before we even get into that, Maybe give us uh, the background. You know, what led you to write the book? Well, I think the main thing was that I've, you know, read a lot of books over the years related to gender roles and masculinity. And I just didn't have a a book that I really uh, loved or one that I could recommend to people. Uh, I mean, there have been some good books, but I'd always have to maybe qualify it or something. And so, um, a lot of frustration with some of the complementarian literature, I would say. And so I really wanted to tackle the the biblical passages um, speaking to, you know, manhood and womanhood and uh, basically just try to fill a gap in the literature. How much, how much, you know, how much research and, and time did you put in? I mean, I want to take you, this is a pretty thorough book. So like how much did, time did this take you to get this going? Yeah. I mean, I think, I probably wrote it in a year, but I would qualify that some, I mean, when it took a, you know, there's, there's some intense uh, periods of writing there, but, you know, I'd also been reading on the the subject for, for a while. So kind of something I had been thinking about topics I had thought about or uh, studied. And so, uh, you know, I wasn't going in uh, completely empty here, but, um, yeah, I mean, it did take a fair amount of study and, and I ordered a bunch of books that, uh, you know, trying to do some research and, uh, yeah, read, read a fair amount, tried to interact even with, you know, some of the egalitarian books. That's why one thing I tried to do was get, get the best egalitarian arguments I could find and then smash them. And, uh, but also I, I did critique some of the complementarian literature as well, because I, I do think there's been some compromise there and maybe watering down of uh, both the Bible, but even, you know, just historic Christian views of some of these things. Well, how about you break down for us, uh, you know, let's keep it simple here. What, what do you mean by complementarian? What, what does that language mean? Yeah. So it's a, a clunky term, as I say, that was invented in the 1980s. Um, basically it was a response in the church to evangelical feminism and so some men got together, a couple of leaders were like, you know, people would know John Piper and Wayne Grudem, and they formed a um, complementarian organization, uh, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and then they came out with a book that's fairly well known called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And basically, their, I would say their emphasis was twofold, that men are to be the leaders of their household and that only men can be pastors and elders. And so I think those are, you know, biblical truths. Those are good things. I think that there was some disagreement amongst uh, the, the complementarians on some issues and you start to see that play out more over time. And so some people, you know, you'll, you'll, hear this referred to nowadays, and I use this language in my book of differences between narrow and broad complementarianism. And in one sense, the recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood 
book is mostly a defense of a narrow complementarianism. So those two points about basically male headship in the home and in the church. But, uh, you know, there are broader complementarians who argue, you know, that this also male rule also applies in society, you know, so civil government and things like that. Um, but also tying it to the God's design and the, and the natures of uh, men and women. And so that's not just some command, but it's tied with who we are and how God has designed us. And so you have some of that in some of the complementarians, but there are, there definitely are some, some differences. And I think you're seeing a, a trend towards like a narrow complementarianism, but there's also, I think, somewhat of a reaction to that. And so that, that's partly what my book is. It, it definitely critiques uh, a narrow complementarianism. So I, I got a question. Um, so in terms of complementarianism, especially the, the beginning, we were just talking about the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, do you think, if, if you can follow my logic here, do you think it was uh, some kind of a, I guess you could call it a stalled restart of patriarchy, or do you think that it was kind of the nail in the coffin that got to where we are right now? Well, I guess, are, are you asking, was was it supposed to be like a mid uh, middle way or kind was it, of, was it like kind, a re- kind of. recover? Was it like an yeah. attempt to recover biblical sexuality or in your opinion, was it an attempt to actually move away from it or maybe a mixture of both or something like that? Is this actually, you know, were they looking at a landscape of egalitarianism and trying to recover something good? Or were they looking out at a landscape and then trying to, uh, let's get a middle position. I think their intentions were probably good, but I think they took somewhat of a middle position. And, and I think part of this was tied with the fact that they were playing defense. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a good point. They, there was a lot of literature, you know, feminist arguments that had been coming out for years. And so they wanted to come out and respond to that and affirm what they thought was just, you know, the, the clear teaching of scripture on male rule in the, the home and church. And I think that was good, but I don't think they necessarily developed a full biblical theology of men and women. But I would also say they did try to soften. I think this is pretty clear if you read some of the things, and I try to point this out in, in my book, is they did try to change some prior views. And so they, that's why they, they didn't like the word patriarchy. And, you know, while we all recognize there's some, I think, uh, associations that are bad of it. Um, you know, it's better to redeem the word is how I would argue it. You know, so we, we argue for a Christian patriarchy, um, biblical patriarchy, but they abandoned the term and try to use this new term. And, uh, but, but even some of their, their arguments or their, I should say their, uh, interpretations of scripture, some of them deviate in some way. So, so one would be that they, they tend to downplay the, I guess, the biological differences of men and women. Kind of like I, I say, the different natures. You know where, uh, you know, the the duties of men and women are are tied with with their their bodies and their their beings. And so, I, I think they tend to downplay that. So even just the fact that like a woman's body, I, this is the best example. I think a woman's body is made to to bear children and nurse children. And that's a great thing. And it just seems like they, they shy away from that. So they don't, they're not going to get in the issue as much about women taking on careers and, um, which I think is a, you know, a huge problem. And, and so they're not going to get into passages like Titus two about the older women training, the younger women, you know, be working at home. Uh, Paul also you know, makes a similar statement in first Timothy five about, uh, <clears throat> wanting widows, younger widows to remarry and, and, uh, manage, manage their homes and things like that. So, so they're going to shy away from some of these issues. I would also say they deviated from some, um, uh, what I would say is the consensus view of like 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, which is that uh, the women, you know, it says women are to be silent in the churches. And, and you know, every commentator before 1962, Calvin, Dagny, Warfield, I mean, it doesn't matter. They all said that this was an absolute uh, prohibition. It's a it's a parallel passage with First Timothy two, and that it requires women 
or prohibits, I should say, women from speaking publicly in a worship service. And so the, the complementarian position, you know, was uh, they follow some interpreters uh, from 1962 on, uh, one of which in 1965 uh, was a female pastor, so interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's this view that, that uh, Paul was only prohibiting women from evaluating prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. So this is, I mean, this is the dominant view now today, even in the commentaries, and, uh, you know, it's found in that chapter by Don Carson in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And so I, I spent a whole chapter critiquing that. I think that's wrong. And, uh, I mean, at, at minimum, I can say, you know, with full confidence that that's not the historic view. And so I do think they, they certainly deviated there. Now, that people defending that position would say, well, we think this is more biblical and that, you know, so this is a more biblical position. You know, I, I, I disagree with that. Uh, there's some other, other positions, uh, other views, but I think that's maybe one of the biggest ones. So evangelical feminism, I know you talk about that in your book as well. Um, and I know you were on uh, Hard Men Podcast with Eric Kahn. And uh, so Eric wrote an article, if I remember right, it was called The Feminization of the American Church, or American Pulpit, I think, if what it was. Um, and I was interested if you thought that what he wrote in there was what gave rise to evangelical feminism, or if, or if you think that evangelical feminism uh, came a little bit later, maybe right before or right after uh, the whole complementarianism thing. Because I, I know he was making the point that um, a lot of this started, at least uh, somewhat in the 1800s, um, with uh, books being more geared towards women and men not wanting to go to church anymore once the pastors started preaching more to women than they were to men, et cetera. So I don't know, I was just interested on your your opinion on when you think we kind of got this thing known as evangelical feminism. Yeah, that's a good question. It's been a while since I read that article by Eric. Um, but I, I do think there is something to, you know, even like the early, early America and, and uh, you know, the feminization of the, the pulpit and uh, the pastorate. But, I mean, I, in my book, I focus more on, you know, the 1800s with the, the feminist, you know, first wave feminist movement. And, uh, I mean, there was definitely ties there with the church. <laughs> there were there was some uh, women leaders in, in first wave feminism who were also ministers. Um, Anna Howard Shaw comes to mind. Uh, there were others, <clears throat> and so so you have, you know, feminism even in the mid 1800s in the church, but it really I think grew, you know, it was more explicit in in probably the the mid 1900s where you start to see a a much stronger push for women in uh, in the pastorate, um, but but yeah, I definitely think the the seeds were sowed much earlier. Uh, so, so I don't know. I, I, I think it started early, but you know, now it's obviously in your face, you know, where there's, there's women, pastors, theologians, all these things. And we're supposed to just all get along and be in, be in the same group and same, uh, you know, uh, uh, scholarship, uh, society and things like that. Yeah. I think it, I think it was more of a slow bleed thing. Um, I, 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 I kind of think looking historically, it may have st- you know, you have the biblical counsel for manhood and womanhood, and like you were saying, some of it is a kind of a reaction. I think it was starting probably to take more root then, but it's just interesting to see it all kind of erode slowly underneath, and then kind of by the time it popped its ugly head out, you know, you didn't really have too many men anymore willing to talk out against it. And then, um, like you were saying, I think the complementarianism thing was not a not a full response that it should have been to it, but um, but move, moving on with your book, um, I appreciated, like Joseph said, the the order how you laid things out. It, it's very logical. It's very. It, it seems very orderly. Uh, I, I do have a question. So, a lot of times you you make notes in parentheses about this will be covered later in chapter eight or this will be covered here and stuff. Did you go back and add that, or did you did you plan that out? Because I, I the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like. Did he actually go back from chapter twelve to chapter one and be like, "I need to add that," or did he just plan it that way? So I'm just interested to know. 
I think I had a, uh, I don't remember at what point I developed a outline of the book and kind of had chapters I knew I was going to include and then maybe rearrange some things. Uh, but yeah, I definitely went back through at the end and, and, you know, would cut some things and decided I'm going to cover that more in depth in this chapter. Um, cause yeah, in one way, like, you know, the, you start talking about some of these topics or, uh, scripture passages and you can't cover it in depth everywhere. And so I just had to, I had to reference other parts of the book. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one of the things I wanted to get, get us talking about here was you said one of the, the things that was not well developed in complementarianism or often just abandoned altogether was the issue of, of nature and, you know, men and women's natures being different and um, it's very interesting to me because you, uh, the complementarians, we they point to First uh, Timothy two as a as a as a, a, a passage for why women can't be uh, preachers or or pastors in a church, and then you have this the the reasons there that the apostle Paul gives are 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 not narrowly limiting reasons, right? So what they want to do is limit this teaching then to what goes on in the church. But the reasons Paul gives for why he says a woman can't exercise authority over a man or teach a man are not narrowly limited to the scope of the church. Uh, They are man was created first, and then the, the woman was deceived. Both of these things... Um, well, one is certainly pre-fall, but the second is certainly pre-curse in the sense of uh, you, you don't have Genesis 3 yet. Both of these are before Genesis 3, the, the curse, which a lot of feminists like to look to is, as the that's the reason there was some kind of patriarchal order, but the gospel undoes it. But the Paul points to pre-curse and the created order. And so... It's interesting that the complementarian argument then limits Paul's instructions there to the church when it seems to me, and I, I think commentators and Christians throughout history have seen, he's actually appealing to something much greater nature. And so maybe just talk about that a little bit, about um, how what, what does nature teach us about men and women, and how do we recover that kind of understanding in our day that nature actually teaches us something. Yeah. I think the first place to go here is, is the, uh, you know, special revelation we have in scripture. So the, the creation account. And <clears throat> I think Paul in first Timothy two is appealing to that, you know, as a whole. And so and he says for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And it's not, I don't think he's just pointing to the idea that Adam was formed first. It's its not some arbitrary, oh, well, Adam, you know, man was made first, so, so then Eve is supposed to, uh, you know, submit to his, submit to her husband. Because the I animals think were made tied, before Adam, right? <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Yeah, and egalitarians yeah. like to point that out. And so, yeah, I, I mean, you can come back and say, okay, well, animals are different. They're not the same species, right? So, you know both men and women are, they're both fully human, made in the image of God. But it's not just that Adam was formed first. You know, when you go look at the creation account, Adam's formed first. And what else does it say in in Genesis 2? Is that Eve was made as a helper for him. And so she's supposed to support him and uh, support his work. And one of the big ways she does that is by, by bearing children. And that's even tied with her name. Uh, Eve, a uh, life giver in Hebrew. And um, and she's made from Adam's rib. And so her work is directed towards the man. Uh, and Adam is made from the ground and his work is directed towards the ground. And so you have these things in the creation account. You even see it in Genesis 3, where, you know, where's Adam judged? He's judged uh, in his work, you know, towards the, uh, the ground. And he'll, uh, you know, eat food gather food in uh, by the sweat of his brow, and Eve is judged in the area of childbearing. And so you have these differences just, you know, all over 
uh, the creation account. Now, I was just going to say, what strikes me is even even going back into Genesis one, when when God creates man in His image, He created them male and female. The name of the species is named after the male man, and then you have right. male and female. There's actually the order, like honor your father and mother. All throughout Scripture, it's most most of the time it's the man first and then the woman um, mentioned secondly in, in that kind of order. Um, I even noticed recently that a lot of um, feminists and like our culture is now trying to twist that when they introduce things like now woman and man. And <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that that's happening. Sorry. A, so a, I, a I, woman and you a just man. made me think of that. Huh? What? A, a woman and a man. A woman and a man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I, I get into some of the weeds here with with some of these uh, issues in the in the book because you know the, the feminists will say that uh, you know humans being described as man is not doesn't mean anything, but but I deal with that in my uh, chapter on the creation account. Um, but but I also want to say that in First Timothy two fourteen, it's not just that Adam was formed first, but also that Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So this is actually another passage I was thinking of that complementarians have uh, deviated from, uh, I would say, a more historic interpretation. And the complementarian position most commonly taken today is that, and you see this in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, is that this is describing a role reversal. And it's not saying that there's anything about Eve uh, you know, as far as her her nature and uh, you know ability to be deceived, anything like that. There's it, it downplays that. It says there's nothing there. It's just a role reversal. But that I'm not sure that really makes that much sense. Uh, it, it also the text is very clear that it says Adam was not deceived. You know, it doesn't say anything about him intentionally sinning. The the point is, you know, woman woman is not to teach man uh, the scriptures because she was deceived and the man was not. And it doesn't mean women are always deceived all the time or that men are never deceived, but it does seem to be saying something about, um, you know, God's design of, of men and women in their, their, their very being. And I think George Knight, I think makes a good point where I think he says that he thinks this is tied with the fact that women are made to follow, right? Woman is made to follow uh, a man and so, you know, it's it's not this awful thing about women that they're more easily deceived. It's they're made to follow. And so um, they're not supposed to lead. They're not supposed to preach uh, God's word. And, um, you know, and so First Timothy 2, yeah, I mean, supposed to do the opposite, right? Verse 11, let a woman uh, learn quietly with all submissiveness. And... Um, in verse 12, rather, she is to remain quiet. And so you have these opposite things. I don't know how people twist this passage to say anything else. But um, so anyway, so so to, just to answer your question overall, I think you have to go to the special revelation in Scripture. But I do think there's also, um, you know, God's re- revelation in nature. We can look at the, the you know, the very bodies of, of men and women. I think you have to factor that in here. And it, it, ought, it ought not to be ignored. And so... Um, it makes good sense, right? When you look at how men and women are made differently, and uh, uh, you know, just as far as male male rule, uh, but also women's duties. I, I think this is a big thing that I mentioned in the book. We often say gender roles. I like the phrase duties or word, word duty. You know, men and women have different duties that God has given us, and these are good things, right? They're, they're things to be embraced, and um, you know, our culture, of course, is distorting them that you know men are trying to act like women and women like men and it's this you know complete disaster so you know one one of one of the kind of feminists that doesn't want to be called a feminist now writing books in uh, presbyterian denominations conservative ones has made an actual somewhat good point now they've twisted it but the good point was a lot of things talk about what women can't do and so you know, she was writing a book on what they can do, which obviously was all, all kinds of stuff that they can't do. <laughs> but one of the things that's very helpful, one of the things you just said, very helpful, even when it comes to 
the nature that she was deceived is that God designed us with certain um, callings, vocations, uh, duties, and then our natures are made for those. And it's not a, it's not a um, bad thing that they're not made for something else. It's not, I've always said it like this. It's not bad that a coffee cup is not designed to be a hammer. Um, you try to use a coffee cup as a hammer, you're going to get things wrong, but if you use it rightly. And so um, it was good that the way you tied that into she's deceived because she's designed to follow. She's designed to, to come along and be a helper to her husband. That's part of her nature. Now, Satan works on even our strengths, the good things, and can twist them to our detriments. And that's probably, as you're saying, that's the reason why it's mentioned. Women aren't to be the leaders um, because they're not designed for that. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. All right, man. Well, I always ask this question at the end. If uh, anybody's listening and they want to get a copy of your book or they want to contact you and ask you any questions, can you let them know how they can do that? Yeah, probably the best way to uh, find me would be on um, my website. Uh, I have a Christian education website, uh, teachdiligently.com, but I'm more active on Bible website, which is knowingscripture.com. So you can go on there. There's the contact page. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter if you want to follow me on there. So, Awesome, man. Well, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. I have really, really enjoyed your book. Um, and, and as a funny aside, uh, a particular gay um, stewardess, or st- st- whatever they call the male version on, on the flight uh, that I was at the Fight Left Feast uh, rally, uh, looked at the title of it and gave me a really weird look the other day. <laughs> and I thought you'd think that was <laughs> quite humorous because I was reading it and I noticed he looked down, he looked at it and gave this kind of roll-eyed look like, ooh, what's that? So... So it's making an effect both good and bad. But I, I actually got a chance to share the book with a few other people out there. And I think we might have a few more sales from that. But uh, I appreciate it. Again, I really appreciate the layout of it. Anybody who has not read this book, you need to go out and get it. Thank you guys for having me on. I, I enjoyed it. That was Zachary Garris, author of Masculine Christianity, a book that you need to go out and buy right now. But we're going to take a break. And you are listening to The Patriarchy on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Good interview, Zach. I enjoyed meeting him. Uh, he's a very smart guy. I like the way that he writes his book. And I like the way that he thinks. Um, he did a good job in that of, I think, making it accessible to people. Actually, he he put it in the book. He made it really accessible to people both that were academically inclined and not so academically inclined. And I think he did a good job of kind of riding both sides of the fence on that one. But enjoyed it. Um, I think you should definitely go out and buy the book. But um, brings us to our third segment here, which is going to be some application. So, Joseph, take it away. Yeah. Um, again, the encouragement from the book dealing with issues actually that would make us pretty uh, that a, that our our culture hates, and even those some within the church hate, and it puts a lot of pressure on you to be cowardly about that, to shrink back, and. and as we talked about even the distinction between patriarchy and complementarianism there, mm-hmm. you can see how one um, one really is a compromise. It's, it's, it's faithless in a sense, um, whereas the other to hold and then and more importantly to practice in your own life takes faith. It takes trusting the scriptures. You know, Doug Wilson has this thing where he says uh, it is— uh, you should be settled right in your mind now to have no problem pra- uh, problem passages in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I love that saying, yeah. And, and, and basically what he's saying is not that you're going to not struggle with passages, like especially in practicing them. In fact, it's usually the easiest passages to understand. We have the hardest time putting it in practice. 
but it's having in your mind, I'm not going to be ashamed of it. And if the scriptures say it, I'm going to live by it. I'm going to attempt to obey it. Yep. I, I, you often hear a lot of people, probably still well-meaning Christians, but they don't know how to deal with it. I've heard it so many times that they'll go, well, well, I didn't say it, God said it. And it's like they're they're trying to take the heat off of themselves and put it onto God as if they're embarrassed for it, but you shouldn't be. Like, you shouldn't be. You should go... I mean, that's, that's uh, what was that? One of the promos for the rally from last year. It was the clip of Jeff uh, Durbin last year at the conference saying, um, yeah, are you prepared for it? Are you ready for it? And he said, God said. And it was like, that was it, you know? God, yeah, because God said. That should be enough for us to be able to say that and be proud of it and not be ashamed of it. Yeah. And it's, it's you're kind of... If you did that with your friend, if you were out with your friend, like, well, I didn't say it, he said it. You're like throwing your friend under the bus. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get punched. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get you're punched. Throwing, <laughs> yeah. So you're trying to throw God under the bus, I guess. Um, now, there's a way, obviously, it is God's word, not our word. But the, we, we can say that in such a way to be like, well, you know, I'm actually kinder and nicer than God. But God said that, and since he's God, I'll have to go along with that. That was Old Testament God. He said that. That was when he was yeah. angry. So we have to have faith to have no pro- uh, problem passages, but we're not saying something that we just, we're saying it, it's easier than actually practicing it. We know that. And so we have to have ways to strengthen our faith. You know, faith itself is a gift of God. It's, it's something he gives us. It's a, uh, some people have said an infused virtue, one in which he has given to us this gift of faith. And then faith exercises itself by believing the promises of Scripture and walking in that way. So it's a gift. But faith can also be strengthened and can grow. Um, There can be little faith, and God blesses even little faith. He's very tender to it, but we must strengthen our faith. So I have a few little things here, and I know we only got a few minutes, so I'm going to bust through them really quickly of just some help for you and and to grow your faith. And the first one is simply to reflect on the promises of God, right? You can strengthen your faith by meditating on His Word and knowing His Word doesn't go forth void. It always accomplishes what it intends. So meditate on the promises of the Word. Charles Spurgeon says, like, just, you know, a lot of times we— think we got to bust through whole chapters and your reading plan. You've got, you're trying to get as much content as possible. And that can be good, but sometimes, many times, it's very important just to take, just take a phrase, take a promise found in scripture and meditate it on, think about it, reflect on it, and then ask God to help you to trust it. You know, all the promises in scripture, the Bible says are yes and amen in Jesus. They are for us. So even the New Testament even takes promises that were given specifically to like an individual like Joshua, which says, be strong and be courageous. It takes that individual promise to him and it applies it to all believers. So there are promises after promises after promises in Scripture. Meditate on them, think about them, and then ask God to help you to, to trust them and then when you find yourself in a situation where you are struggling, apply that promise to the situation and, and trust God for it. The second way of strengthening your faith is by, it's almost the flip side of that same first one. So the first one is you're looking forward to the promises. The second one is just remember all the times that he's kept his promises to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that song, count your blessings, name them one by one. That's that. Nothing can strengthen your faith better than looking back and seeing every time God has carried you and he has kept his promises to you. And, you, and write them down. We are so quick to forget. Like, you can have, I, I know this in my own life, I've had a, a, a great victory where God has really shown himself. And then like two days later, I can already already be in despair, like not trusting the promises. And it's like, God just provided for me in a major way. And now I'm despairing over something small. Mm -hmm. That's usually what happens. So 
keep a list of the, the promises that God's kept. Um, the next thing I would say is you can strengthen your faith by surrounding yourself with faithful men. And men who can bring you to Jesus when you feel you can't. Men who can tell of God's faithfulness to them. Like young men, you need older men. And you need to like ask them questions of like, how has God provided for you? Uh, find some older man who has just been walking with the Lord. You remember Polycarp when he was going to be um, uh, killed, martyred. He was in his 80s and uh, maybe even 90 or something. He was an old man. And one of the things he said was like, I've walked with the Lord these some 88 years yeah. and he's never failed me. Man, if you can just sit at his feet and hear his stories. <laughs> yeah. And then he and then you see what he does. He dies. He's martyred because he had all that past behind him, actually. And so putting yourself with older men. Um, another one that I would uh another important point of way to strengthen your faith um is by forgetting yourself. That is stop worrying about what others think about you. The fear of man will keep you from faithfulness to God, whereas faithfulness to God will keep you from the fear of man. And men, you need to be, uh, forget yourself and serve God. Uh, there's one of the old uh, missionaries, who he went to India um, back in the, uh, maybe the 1700s, something like that said, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. And um, that comes from, I think, setting aside yourself, which he obviously had to do to go to like a place far away. And he had at least, I think it was 10 years without having even one convert. Oh, wow. And yet he was post-millennial. <laughs> he really was. Uh, William Carey. And so... um Going along with that uh, not fear of man is exercising your faith, which is that attempt great things for God. Uh, um, I love uh, Charles Spurgeon said this. He, when people were complaining about little faith, he, he said, I'm not shocked that you complain of the littleness of your faith. It ought to be little. You do so little. Why should God give you more <laughs> strength than you plan to use? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so some of us have little faith, right? And we just have to exercise that in things, right? You just have to have faith to tell your wife no. Like you just have to have faith sometimes to say, no, honey, we can't do it this way. That's not what God intends for our family. We got to go this way. Or um, faith to discipline your children. And faith to uh, just start, you know, wherever you're at in your life. To, you hear about being a man, you're hearing about what great men do, and you're, think, and you're thinking, how do I get to that greatness? Well, start with the little steps and exercise your faith, right? What are you doing to each day to grow your faith? And then finally, the last thing, and are we under 10 minutes, Tony? Oh, we're over. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Told you. Here's the last. Here's the last thing, and we'll be done. <laughs> Keep your eyes on Jesus. Uh, uh, growing faith is not about you're trying to gauge how much faith you have. Like we're never told to put our faith in faith. Rather, we put our faith in Jesus, and He's the one who's reigning. He's the one who put His enemies under His feet. You can trust Jesus. So, and and trust Him, knowing that He. He's tender to those who have little faith, but he also will test and strengthen and grow your faith. And so uh, he won't leave you in little faith. Amen. Well, we hope this episode has been helpful to you, and I would encourage you to go out and buy Masculine Christianity by Zachary Garris. Excellent book. It really is. Uh, you can grab it on Amazon or, I don't know, probably some other places. Amazon might be the easiest, or your local bookstore. Try and go to maybe your local Christian bookstore. <clears throat> they may not have it, but you can tell them to order it, and they should have it. So that being said, uh, if you're not yet a Fight, Laugh, Feast Club member, 
Go to fightleftfeast.com, become a club member, sign up with the code PATRIARCH if you want to support our show and get access to behind-the-scenes content, such as our other show, After the Sandwich. You're missing out if you're not hearing that. And a bunch of other really good content that uh, the other guys on the network are putting out there, too. So go to fightleftfeast.com, click to sign up to become a member, and use the code PATRIARCH to support our show. If you want to get any patriarchy gear go to confessionalware.com click on podcast collaborations and look for our show we got about six shirts and about two coffee mugs and more to come later this year a couple more designs i'm just finalizing up and sending over i think you guys will like it so go to confessionalware.com click on podcast collaborations look for our show and also buy some of the other stuff they got there too they're good guys a uh, good couple over there uh, make a lot of really cool stuff so uh, show them some love and buy some of their other stuff too and tell them that the patriarchy sent you so until next time If you have not yet bowed your knee to Christ, repent and believe. And if you have, this is our call to you. Build, fight, protect, lead. This is The Patriarchy. (laughs) 